Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of part three on incidental illness. And I put bladder cancer in the incidental illness category. It's interesting, when I was giving this talk a number of years ago, I would not really put it in my lecture. Bladder cancer is very common, 72,000 plus new cases and 15,000 plus deaths in the U.S. this past year. Most of the cancers are transitional cell carcinomas, though occasionally squamous and adenocarcinomas uh, will occur. Now, the thing about bladder cancer, we always think about CT in bladder cancer for staging, sometimes for detection as part of a hematuria workup. But what we're finding, particularly as we do more and more arterial phase imaging, it's often an incidental finding. And so I can ask the questions, how often is it incidental finding? How often is it missed on a routine CT scan? What is the legal liability of missing the diagnosis of bladder cancer in asymptomatic patients? And what do you look for on a CT to detect these incidental cancers? And it's very important to recognize these incidental tumors are best seen on arterial phase imaging and often only seen on arterial phase imaging. Also, it's important to recognize unless the bladder is distended, you're typically not going to see these lesions. We give water as an oral contrast, so we distend the bladder. And so it's easy to see these incidental lesions. And it may be on a patient we're doing a CTA on to look at the aorta. And we're not looking at the bladder, but you need to look at the bladder. Any enhancement of the bladder wall or of, off the bladder wall should be investigated further. To me, an enhancing bladder lesion is always carcinoma. Do not assume a zone of subtle bladder enhancement is of no clinical significance. And if you're uncertain, coronal and sagittal views can be helpful. Look at this lesion at about uh, the level of the right UV junction, about 7 o'clock. It's a small lesion under a sonometer, but it's enhancing. That was a transitional cell carcinoma of the bladder. Now, if you were uncertain, you could look at the coronal view, and there it is very nicely, and I could manipulate the views a bit to show it better. And in this case, it was posterior. If you had delayed phase in this one, you would have seen the lesion as well. So sometimes on delayed phase, you'll see it, but often you will not have this very nice layering effect. You'll be scanning too early, or the lesion will not be posterior. So subtle enhancement is a key. Another patient, this was done to look at the aorta and iliac vessels. There's a subtle lesion about 6 o'clock in the posterior bladder wall. There it is again on the posterior portion of the bladder on the sagittal view, very nicely shown. If you're uncertain, just do the reconstructions. And in this case, on delayed phase imaging, there it is. But look how easy it would be to miss it on delayed phase with the bladder opacified. Often it's easiest and may be only seen when you have the early phase imaging. Now, I was giving a talk about this and someone told me they, a friend of theirs went to a lecture for lawyers about medical malpractice. It was basically looking at ways of suing doctors and they were saying bladder cancer is the next big thing. Go back retrospectively and look, bladder cancers are often missed. And I'll share an example. This was a patient came in with severe abdominal pain and you can see the descending colon has colitis. And the patient was operated on for colitis, ischemic colitis. What wasn't noted on the non-contrast scan is there's a soft tissue mass in the bladder. Well, it was an acute setting and it saved the patient's life. But three years later, here's the bladder mass is bigger and now the patient has meds. So again, you need to look very carefully at the bladder. 
Once you're giving arterial phase imaging especially, look at the bladder. We've discussed this at our uh, conferences at Hopkins when we do our quality assurance. And since then, it was amazing how many lesions we didn't quite catch perfectly initially, but now we don't miss any of them. Very important. Now, a challenge is also ovarian lesions. What do you do with ovarian masses? And that's a really good question. Sometimes it's very simple. A large mass like this in a 50-ish year old with multiple septations, that's easy. That's an ovarian cancer. That's coming out. But what about this 27-year-old? Can we assume these are ovarian cysts? If the patient had fever, you can think about tubovarian abscesses and perhaps they're endometriomas. But what do we do with these things? Do you always say recommend ultrasound? We know, in fact, and this is a very important finding, this is the ACR paper, the range of normal ovarian size varies as a function of hormonal status. In premenopausal women, ovaries up to 20 centimeters in volume are within the upper 95th percent confidence interval for normal, whereas in postmenopausal women, the upper 95th percentile is a volume of 10 cubic centimeters. So again, age becomes very critical. Again, for an oval-shaped structure, these volume limits generally translate to a maximum linear diameter of 5 centimeters for premenopausal and 3 to 4 centimeters for postmenopausal women, with the size of the ovary decreasing after age 30. So what did the committee recommend? Well, you need to know pre- and postmenopausal. So here are some of the recommendations. The committee recommends short interval follow-up premenopause ultrasound in 6 to 12 weeks for benign appearing anexal cysts greater than 5 cm in diameter and probable benign anexal cysts greater than 3 centimeters. When an incidental identified benign appearing cyst in a woman in early postmenopause is over 5 cm, the committee recommends prompt ultrasound evaluation to ensure that small wall nodules have not been overlooked. In the early postmenopausal period, they recommend prompt ultrasound for a cyst over 3 centimeters and in late menopause for a probable benign cyst over a centimeter. So again, you can see the age really defines the pre and postmenopausal and late postmenopausal, the change from 5 to 3 to 1 centimeter. Again, the committee recommends that a nexal cyst identified on CT or MR under a centimeter maximum size in any phase of the postmenopausal period should be considered benign unless there are clearly identified imaging features, suspicious malignancy, or evidence of possible metastatic ovarian cancer. So again, trying to really guide us. Again, another recommendation. In late postmenopause, the committee does not recommend prompt or follow-up ultrasound of any asymptomatic benign-appearing cyst under 3 centimeters. So again, you may want to do a chart. Those are hard to remember, the 3s, the 5s, the 4s, and the 1s. But again, there are recommendations, and this is a good start in that group of patients. Now, what else? Unsuspected findings. Pulmonary emboli are not uncommonly detected incidentally, and the frequency will depend on whether you're looking at thick or thin sections. When you use thin sections, you'll see much more pulmonary emboli. Now, a very important population is the oncology population. Here are patients who are following up for routine surveillance of tumor and follow-up post-therapy, and it's common to see pulmonary emboli. In the literature, 1% to 5% of incidental PEs in this population group. And it's particularly common in pancreatic patients. So our rule is have a high clinical suspicion. If you're looking at the abdomen in an oncology patient, you have some of the chest, 
rule out not just a lung nodule in the bases, but a PE. You need to be thinking differently. And again, routine thin sections are critical. And here's a simple example of a nice PE in the right lower lung. Now, it's interesting, in my experience, most of the PEs that are incidental are in the right lower lung, probably 90%, not the left lower lung. I can't explain it. So I tell people, if you're really busy and you only can look at one side, look at the right. That'll get you 90% of the incidental lesions. Now, one can argue and say, what should we do with incidental lesions? Uh, we talk about dots, perhaps they're not important to manage, but you need to report them. And although we talk about perhaps not giving patients anticoagulant therapy, in my experience, anticoagulant therapy is almost always given. Now, what are other incidental findings? What's going on in this case? Look at the left atrial appendage. Is there a thrombus there? What is going on? Well, when you look at it carefully, you realize that you're really looking at a fluid fluid level. And what's happening is when you have a large atrial appendage and you scan early, it's really a pseudoclot. So don't be calling this a thrombus. It's an incidental finding of no clinical significance. If you want to be certain, just go back 30 seconds or 60 seconds later and it'll be well opacified. When you have a thrombus in the left atrial appendage, here's how it might look. This is a large one. There's no fluid fluid level. Or here's a smaller one. And this is a great case because you have a left atrial appendage thrombus, and when you scan the abdomen, there's also an infarct in the kidney. They often go hand in hand. There was an article by her that showed that CT was 100% accurate for detecting left atrial thrombi, but of course, in this study, very important to recognize, they did routinely do two phases to differentiate thrombus from circulatory stasis, which causes a pseudolesion. And so in their article, you can see their second scan was 30 seconds after the first scan. And that's a good rule. If you see something funny, you're not certain, just get a couple slices and you'll be able to make the differential diagnosis very easily. Now, I think that one of the challenges with incidental findings is the fact with radiation dose issues, we, we of course try to minimize the dose to our patients, but this has some consequences. Low dose protocols, in fact, have grainier uh, images, and so perhaps we're going to pick up more incidental findings. Um, while low-dose protocols may not impact lesion detection in select protocols, they may pose significant challenges in other protocols, and I'm thinking liver and I'm thinking kidney. When images are noisy, you really can't detect lesions sometimes, or you can't classify them. So all of a sudden you have things that might be really cis, you're calling indeterminate. The other thing is, when we have multiple phases, it's much easier to understand the lesion. As we try to minimize phases, um, it kind of makes things more of a challenge to us. Again, we don't want to do more phases than we need to do, but sometimes, you know, if you don't have if you only have a single phase, it can be very, very difficult. It may really hinder our ability to define or detect disease. Again, we always speak about this balance. I always show this article by Mervyn Cohn making the point, the risk of radiation, one risk of course is the potential for harm, but the other risk, is there a risk of lowering the dose so low that the risk of missing a diagnosis from excessive noise in the image begins to exceed the risk of radiation itself, that when performing CT, Adequate radiation dose must be used to make a confident and accurate diagnosis. And again, it goes back to this point that I think with too low a dose, you will have a lot of incidental findings that you're going to overcall. So again, it's really a very important balance.
Another thing I mentioned earlier in the talk in part one is you need to figure out ways of really coming to some consensus in your own department. This idea that agreement is lacking across institutions and within departments for many of the common findings is indeed very important. We need to have consistent internal guidelines. If there's no external guidelines, try to come up with something internally. If not, it's really a problem for the referring clinicians, and it's a problem. You hate to have the same patient have two different recommendations depending who reads the study. So some conclusions. Departmental and group guidelines are important when dealing with incidental findings, and as scanning gets better, we are going to see more incidental findings. Organized radiology, be it the ACR, RSNA, Rankin Ray, GI societies, must develop guidelines similar to the Fleischner Society for Pulmonary Nodules. There is no guideline that's going to be 100% accurate 100% of the time, but at least it gives us a way of really setting our compass and doing things correctly. No guideline is ever going to be perfect, but it's critical for radiologists and for clinicians, our referring clinicians, and for our patients to have a rational approach to patient management. So hopefully what I've shown you is a number of different incidental lomas. There are other things. You name the organ, there are always incidental lomas, right? We talk about the lung. We talk about vasculature, we talk about pseudo-lesions and pseudo-dissections and artifact, all sorts of issues. We talk about with dual energy, the fact that dual energy uh, with high density can remove structures and call a vessel stenosis or vessel occlusion when it's not present. So I can give you part three some more, I can give you part four, and I can give you part five of incidental findings. And perhaps when we come back and do this again in a year or 18 months, we'll do that. But in the meantime, again, think about these challenges and hopefully these talks have been helpful to you. And with that, have a great day.